0: Let me encourage you to take your copy of God's Word, look with us at Titus chapter 3, Titus chapter 3. As you're turning to Titus chapter 3, I want to encourage you to use your worship guide. We provide for you uh, blank pages for uh, sermon note-taking. It's a wonderful way for you to intentionally stay engaged in the preaching of God's Word, so we'd like to commend that to you this morning. Titus chapter 3, as we continue this Easter, uh, this Easter, this Christmas season to reflect on the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're looking at incarnation this Christmas season through several, uh, uh, several theological uh, reflections. Uh, this week we're looking at Titus chapter 3 and the concept that the incarnation of Christ is enables our our sanctification. Last week, we looked at the truth that the Incarnation reveals for us God's character. We'll look this coming Sunday, as we celebrate together through our carols and lessons, the Incarnation reveals to us the miraculous, and we'll also see from Hebrews chapter 1, the Incarnation brings us... God's revelation, and then Easter, Christmas Sunday, the incarnation brings us salvation. Now this morning in our text, indeed the concept of salvation is all here. You'll notice a number of words that mention or reflect upon salvation, but Paul's focus in this text is upon sanctification, the way that you and I, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, actually live our lives in a Christ-like manner before a lost and dying world. We'll see this truth communicated in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8 this morning. Christ's incarnation, Jesus's incarnation, enables our sanctification that changes the way we live our lives. Jesus' incarnation enables our sanctification. That sanctification changes the way that we live our lives before others. Paul will give us three main points in this text of Scripture. The first point from verses 1 and 2 as believers, we must exemplify Christ before all people. And then the heart of what he's going to communicate is found here in verses 3 through 7. We must exemplify Christ before all people. Why? Notice verse 3, 4, because God saved us, From our foolishness, God saved us from our foolishness by His Spirit through Christ for our benefit. We must exemplify Christ's likeness. Why? Verses 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, because Christ saved us. What did He save us from? Our foolishness. How did He do it? By His Spirit, through His Word, for our benefit. And then notice the last point there in verse 8, our Christ-likeness, our living like Christ, changes the world around us. Look with me as we flesh these truths out this morning here in this passage of Scripture. He calls us to exemplify Christ's likeness before all people, verses 1 and 2. Remind, it's the one imperative in this text of Scripture. This is what Paul is commending, commanding of Titus. This is what Titus must do for the church. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good Work to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy to whom? All people. Paul is commending Titus that he should give this instruction to the church that this is how they are to live out their lives before all people. We are called as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to imitate the life of Christ. And notice, Paul is very clear. This isn't just a way that we are to live in relationship to one another in the context of the church. Paul is saying that as believers, this is how we are to live in relationship to all people. And I want to make a confession before we get too far into this sermon. Boy, I fell at a number of these designations. Listen to them again. This is what Paul is commanding Titus, remind. The present, active, imperative. This is something, by the way, that we should be continually reminded of. How often? Every day. All the time. Every moment. And what are the type of things that we should be reminded of? Doing good works. What are those good works? To be submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient, to speak evil of no one. Uh Uh-oh, anybody else guilty this week of speaking evil towards somebody? Thank you, Miss Stephanie, you were honest. I appreciate that you and I were honest today. Everybody else is very holy and righteous in here today. All your tongues just gave praise to the Lord. I'm impressed. Avoid quarreling. He didn't say it's okay to quarrel with people who quarrel with you, right? When your husband wants to fight with you, he didn't say go ahead and fight back with him. I heard that "Mm." (laughs) mmm. I'm on this side of the congregation for some reason. Be gentle and show perfect courtesy to all people. This reminds me of the narrative in Acts chapter 2 twice in Acts chapter in Acts in Acts chapter 2 and again in Acts chapter 4. We see the Christian church, we see believers living in this incredible, gracious, kind way toward one another. In fact, the Bible records for us twice in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 that the believers were caring so well for one another. And guess what that love and compassion and mercy did in the communities in which the early church was living? It became a means of evangelism. Those outside the church saw the kindness and love and compassion and mercy that those inside the church showed toward, toward one another, and they asked that question, sirs, What must I do to be saved? This is what Titus is is doing. In some ways, Titus is a little uh, primer for evangelism. The totality of a book is in some ways an encouragement to God's people in the way that they are to live toward other people, the way they are to engage a lost and dying world, and the way that they do that has incredible implications. Go back to Titus chapter two for just a quick moment. But look what he says, verse two, older men, you're to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. Why? That the word of God may not be reviled. And then he goes on, verse 6, he tells us some more ways in which we're to live among one another. Look at the end of verse 8. Why should we live in this way? so that an opponent, the implication is the opponent of the gospel, may not be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And then verse 9, he gives us some more ways that we're to live. And look at the end of verse 10. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of our God, our Savior. See, friends, Paul is concerned about how you and I, as believers, live before a watching world. We are to be at all times Christ-like. I imagine Paul might ask us in this way, how many people have come to faith in Christ... Because of your kindness. Because of your gentleness. How many people in your in your family are believers in in the Lord Jesus Christ? Because of the way in which you you spoke to them. How many people are you pointing to Christ? because of your actions. Paul is concerned with the way you and I live in a lost and dying world in a Christ-like manner. Now how in the world do we live like this? Because the tendency of our flesh, our flesh is not naturally prone being gentle, at least not mine, perhaps some of yours. Our flesh is not prone, our, our tongues are not prone to just wanting to speak very kind and gracious things about our neighbors, for example. Our tongues are prone to do rightly the opposite. This is why Paul is having to Commend the church. This is how you ought to live. But how in the world do you and I live in this fashion before all people and toward all people at all times? This seems like a task that's too big. Does it not? Well, friend, the news is You and I can never live this way apart from the work of Christ. Our actions, our speech, our attitudes will never be controlled by the Spirit and the Word if we are living our lives separated from Christ. Look what he says here beginning in verse... Three, We must live this way before all people. Why? Because God has saved us from our foolishness. How did God save us from that foolishness? By the Spirit, through Christ, for our benefit. You see that with verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in mean-spiritedness, passing our days in in malice and, and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But aren't you thankful for this? Word that begins verse 4. But Paul is speaking of who we once were. This is how we once lived. This is how our lives are characterized apart from Christ. Everything that he said in verse 3 is in direct opposition to what he said in verses 1 and 2. And the only way for us to avoid these actions, actions that once characterized our lives, is only by the work of God. And how was that work accomplished? Look at what the text says. But when the goodness and loving kindness Of our God, our Savior, when it did what? When it appeared. When did this goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appear to you and me? It appeared through the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Peter isn't, uh, sorry, uh, Paul isn't only talking about the incarnation of Christ here, but that appearance began at that incarnation. Peter, uh, sorry, Paul is in some way capturing the totality of the life of Christ in this statement. We see The goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, throughout the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, through His life, through His death, through His burial, and through His resurrection. But the moment at which this truth appeared, the moment, if you will, in which the this truth became apparent. When it became crystal clear, was that the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you remember there are two people at the beginning of that narrative, as Luke recounts for us, two prophetic voices that were awaiting the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, Anna and Simeon. How did Anna and Simeon respond to the incarnation of Christ? What was their response to what God had done in the sending of of Jesus Christ? Luke chapter 2 verse 36, and there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Pheniel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And... Then, as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day, and coming up at the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. When did Anna speak prophetically? When Jesus appeared. See, friends, the beginning of this narrative, the clarity of this narrative of God's redemption of mankind appears with great clarity at the incarnation of Christ. Now, isn't it interesting, Paul's use of language? Here in this phrase, he uses two words, but when the goodness and loving kindness, these are two words in the Greek New Testament, three words translated for you and me in our English, and both of these words as they appear in in the context of of the New Testament are words that are in context and what God has done toward humanity, toward humankind. For example, look with me in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, you know this passage of Scripture very well, but listen at these words in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness, in loving kindness. He might show that toward us how? In Jesus Christ. Friends, the height, the apex of God's love toward you and me is the sending of His Son, Jesus Christ. The apex of that, the height of that is not seen in the fact that you and I have the incredible privilege and joy of living in this wonderful country. The height of that miraculous is not that you and I have the pleasure of working in great places or being married to the most incredible person or having good health. The apex of God's loving kindness and goodness toward you and me is in the sending of His Son, Jesus Christ. But who is this major player in this life of redemption? And notice how Paul defines it when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior. You might think, wait a minute. I'm anticipating him saying, but when the loving kindness of Jesus, our Savior, But how does he note it? When the loving kindness of God, our Savior. See, friends, one of the reasons why Jesus must be fully God in the incarnation is that the truth of the Old Testament in regard to Savior is that there is only one who saves who saved the children of Israel when they were in Egypt facing the red sea and coming through the red sea it was god this is why jesus must be fully god in the incarnation because only god saves and paul reflecting upon this narrative of the life death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ understands that what Jesus has accomplished on behalf of humanity is at the direction of God the Father. It is God the Father who has willed the work of Jesus Christ. This is the fourth reference in the pastoral epistles and the last to God being seen as our Savior. Look at Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, again in Titus chapter, in Titus chapter 2, verse 10, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of our God, our Savior. Look at Titus chapter 1, verse 3, and at the proper time, Manifested in His word through the, uh, through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of who? God, our Savior. Paul does this again in First Timothy. First Timothy chapter two, verse three. First Timothy chapter, chapter two, verse three, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of who? God our Savior. We have a God who is revealed to you and me as Savior. Why do we need a Savior, friends? Verse 3 tells us. Verse 3 paints a picture for us. Verse 3 reminds us that if it were not for the redemption that God has provided you and me through the giving of His Son, Jesus Christ. Can you imagine what the entire world would be like if we were all foolish? If we were all disobedient, if we were all led astray, if we were all slaves to the various passions and pleasures of our flesh, if we were all filled with every day with mean-spiritedness and envy, hated by others and hating others. Could you imagine what that world would look like? Well, we don't have to imagine too hard, do we? For we see these expressions all around us. But what has God done? He has acted as Savior, He has appeared. This word appeared in Titus chapter 3, verse 8, is the seventh time that this word appeared has occurred. And in every single reference, this appearance is to the work of Christ. Let's look just at two others from the context of Titus. Titus chapter 2, notice verse 11 and 13. For the grace of God has done what? Appeared. And in that appearance, what does it do? Bring salvation for all people. Look at verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now in these two references, we get what this word is accomplishing. This word is accomplishing two things. It mentions the first advent of Christ. Titus chapter 2 verse 11, Jesus has appeared and his appearance has brought salvation for all people. But you and I are caught in between that first advent and that second advent. Advent. In Titus chapter 2, verse 13, this word appearing is in reference to the second advent, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. God, our Savior, appeared. Appeared how? through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what did he appear to do? Look at the beginning of verse 5. He saved us. This is one long sentence in the Greek New Testament from verse 4 to verse 7 with one primary controlling verb. That primary controlling verb occurs here in our English Bibles with this phrase, He saved us. This is what God has accomplished through the sending of His Son, Jesus Christ. This is what the Incarnation has accomplished on my behalf and your behalf. This is what Jesus has done by appearing. He has saved us. Now notice what Paul is gonna do next. He's gonna mention this salvation both in the negative and in the positive. He's going to flesh out for us a doctrine of salvation. In the negative, he did not save us by any works of righteousness that you or I could do. Paul has already communicated, juxtaposed for us, the law and faith. If you want to read more about that, you can go to the book of Romans. We'll look at a few references in just a moment. Or you can go to the book of Galatians. He has saved us. How? First, in the negative. Not by any good work you or I could do. Friend, there is nothing that any of us could do that would ever obtain the righteousness of God on your behalf On my behalf, you can't do the positives mentioned in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, enough times. In fact, you could follow Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 the entirety of your life and never make it into eternity with God. Why? Because salvation is not a work of man, it is a work of God. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. Look with me in Romans chapter 3, just quickly, as this text highlights for us this truth that Paul wants us to understand it's not by works. It's not by obedience to the law, Romans chapter 3, verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. You will never be declared righteous by God by doing the works of the law, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What does the law do for you and me? It simply tutors our hearts shows our hearts just how evil and wicked they really are. But in Paul's day, and in our day, there are collections of people for different theological, philosophical reasons determine that they can make it to eternity by doing good works. Romans chapter 9 Beginning in verse 30, Paul is going to tell us what the problem for ancient Israel is. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because Israel, they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone who is Christ. If Israel can't make it into the good graces of God by doing good things, neither will you or I make it into right relationship with God by doing good things. He states it in the negative. He saved us, not in this manner, but how has he saved us? He has saved us according to his own mercy by washing. And what does that washing look like? A work of regeneration and renewal. These works are a work of the spirit now i'm not going to take the next 30 minutes and walk you through the four main ways in which this passage of scripture with the washing of regeneration and renewal of the holy spirit are understood but let me just quickly show you because some of your english bibles inserts the preposition twice for example Look again, but according to, but according to his own mercy by, that's a preposition in the Greek New Testament It can mean by or through. So some of your translations this morning actually translate that preposition as, as through, and that preposition only appears one time in the Greek New Testament. There aren't two prepositions, there is one preposition. Preposition. But some of your Bibles translates through or by the washing of regeneration and by or through the renewal of the Holy Spirit. There's one preposition controlling these two words, regeneration and renewal, and this one preposition is focused primarily upon this one noun, washing. Now, you won't be surprised that Paul, here in this text of Scripture, is reflecting upon salvation and the work of God in means of washing. This is what God has accomplished for you and me by the Holy Spirit through Christ in salvation. What has he washed us of? He has washed us of our sins. How do you wash us of our sins, friends? Through new birth, through regeneration, through renewal. These two words capturing the heart of the work of the Spirit on your behalf and my behalf in salvation. He has saved us by washing us of our sins, how? Through new life, regeneration, and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Let me take you back to the Old Testament from which I believe Paul's understanding of this concept of washing comes from, and then let's look to one passage in the New Testament that adds great clarity to this concept. Look with me in Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36, look at verse 25, 26, and 27. Ezekiel chapter 36 is in some ways the heart of what God is going to reveal to to us through this book. Verse 25, I will sprinkle what? Clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the hardest stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What does Ezekiel say God is going to do for us? He is going to wash us. He is going to cleanse us. And then look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. And such were some of you. But what's happened? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul uses three words here to capture the one concept of salvation. This is what salvation is. It is a washing. Washing, why? Because apart from Christ, you and I are unclean. We are those people mentioned in Titus chapter 3, verse 3. But praise be to God. God, by His Spirit, Through Christ, for our benefit has washed us. How did He wash us? He washed us by giving us regeneration or new life and renewal, both a work of the Spirit of God. This word translated here for you and me, and our text, regeneration, only occurs one other time in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 19, look just real quickly with me if you'd like to Matthew chapter 19 verse 28, and here in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is speaking to his disciples about a time that is yet to come. Jesus is is speaking about a time in which he's going to return, and look what Jesus says to them in verse 28, and Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now did you see that word regeneration there in Matthew chapter 19 verse 28? Or did you read right over it? Truly I say to you, in the new world, in the world that is fully And completely and totally renewed. That image is for you and me, what God does on our behalf through granting us new birth through faith. Paul would say it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, if you are in Christ, you are a new what? Creation. See friends, this is what Paul is capturing here in Titus. Because Jesus has appeared. Because of that babe in a manger. Because of the narrative of of the life of Christ. You and I today are new creatures. We have been renewed, we have been made new. How? By the work of God through the Holy Spirit, or by the Holy Spirit, through Christ. Do you capture what Paul is saying here? Your salvation and my salvation is a work of a triune God. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit at work in renewing and regenerating and giving new birth and sanctifying us and causing us to be like Christ. He saved us by washing us, washing us how? Through new birth, through regeneration, through renewal, all a work of whom? The Holy Spirit. And who is this Holy Spirit? We ask for six. He is the one that has been poured out to whom? He's been poured out to us on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Uh, Paul takes us back to Pentecost, does he not? When was the spirit poured out? See, friends, the miracle of Pentecost and the giving of God's spirit to those who by faith believed in Jesus was not a singular act in human history. Do you know that there is a Pentecost Every time someone confesses Jesus as Lord. Acts chapter 2 is repeated every day. Repeated every moment. The moment at which someone confesses Jesus as Lord, Paul says, the Spirit of God has been poured out on them. Why? Look at verse 7. God has saved us from our foolishness by His Spirit, through Christ, for our benefit. He saved us by His mercy, not as our work, but by His washing, a work that is by the Spirit, through Christ, with a purpose. What's that purpose, friend? That we might be heirs. Verse 7, So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. See, friends, there's a benefit in walking... With Christ. God has saved us from our foolishness by His Spirit through Christ for our benefit. Jesus' work of redemption started seen in His appearing in His incarnation. Has incredible effects for your life and my life. Major implications for who you are and for who I am. But make sure you don't miss it. Paul is not just talking about an heir as if that's something in the future to which we hope. No, salvation has immediate implications for your life and my life. What are those implications? Look back to Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. What are those implications? That we're submissive, that we're obedient, that we do good works, that we speak evil of no one, that we avoid quarreling, that we're gentle, that we show courtesy toward all people. But Paul will write... With clarity in Galatians chapter 3, I'm not going to read it for us in total. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 11 through 29, Paul will write for you and me with great clarity that being an heir of God is not only, does not only bring implications for today, but friends, it has great hope for the future. And what is that great hope for the future? He writes it here the hope of eternal life. See, friends, this is the benefit of you and me rightly walking with God. This is the benefit of you and I rightly trusting in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the benefit of us believing in that narrative of Jesus'. Life, death, burial, and resurrection. It grants us hope for today and hope for eternity. But look at verse 8. The incarnation enables our sanctification, and that sanctification changes the way we live before all people. This is what Paul wants you and I. This is what the Spirit wants you and I to understand concerning this great salvation. Yes, God has redeemed us from our sins, but that redemption enables our sanctification. It changes the way we live on a daily basis, and that change is good news for the entire world. The saying is trustworthy. What saying is trustworthy? This saying that he just gave us about the gospel, he saved us. That is a trustworthy statement that can be repeated over and over and told time and time again. That is a narrative that can never that we can never grow weary of hearing. He saved us. That, my friends, is a good statement, Paul says. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to do what? Devote themselves to good works. These things, these good works, are excellent and profitable for whom? people. Now notice what Paul does for us. He moves from the inclusive to the exclusive. He moves from a small group to the large group. See friends, the way in which the small group who's the small group? Those who have believed in God. The way that we live our lives toward toward the big group, toward everybody has massive implications for their hearts and their lives. See, friends, God has saved you and me, not just so that we can look back at some point in human history, in our history, and say, I remember that day. I remember that moment in which I confessed my sins and trusted in Christ. But God has saved us. He has redeemed us. Jesus has appeared as a babe in a manger so that you and I might grow in sanctification. And that growth in sanctification has incredible benefits for those around us. God's incarnation through Christ Enables my sanctification and your sanctification. What does that What does sanctification mean? It's another word that talks about salvation. God has not just saved us, justified us, made us righteous, but that salvation continues. And the process of that continuation is our sanctification, where He grows us in Christ likeness. The question for you and me today, friends, is are you? am I more like Christ today than I was yesterday? Am I more like Christ today than I was a year ago or five years ago or ten years ago? Will I be more like Christ tomorrow? See friends, God has acted in a final and complete way for you and me to do just that. We need nothing else to walk rightly before God. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for the accomplishment of your son Jesus and his incarnation that brought to us salvation. And we pause for a few moments before you, Lord, to ask that by your spirit and through your word, you would enable us to rightly follow you. That we would rightly follow you so that we might join you, Jesus, in bringing the message of salvation to all people. Would you take a few moments, friend, where you're seated today, and reflect upon the preaching of God's Word. How has God's work of redemption in your life increased Can you see the evidences of the work of the spirit in your life Not just you can others see it Can your coworkers see it Can your family see it? Do your parents see it? Does Facebook know it? If you're here this morning and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, would you take just a moment and ask, The Lord to forgive you of those areas in which you've not seen a growth in sanctification. Areas where the narrative of Titus chapter 3 seems to be more prominent in your life than Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Would you confess that you've been a gossip? Would you confess that you've not been gentle? Would you confess that you've acted with malice? And as you make those confessions, would you thank God that through Christ, He forgives you? Would you thank Him for that sanctifying work of the Spirit? Would you ask the Spirit at this moment to increase your sanctification? Would you ask Him to grow you in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you ask Him to grow you in those characteristics of Titus chapter 3 verses 1 and 2? And friend, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ, perhaps your life is still characterized by Titus chapter three, verse three. And this morning, God, by his word and through his spirit has convicted you that you're stuck in Titus chapter three, verse three, but you've heard the narrative of God's incredible work and providing redemption for you beginning in the incarnation. And today, you'd be willing to turn from your sins, to confess to God that you're a sinner, a sinner and trust in Him by faith. The Bible says, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God is raising from the dead, you can be saved. In just a few moments, we're going to stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's Word. By singing a confession of faith, of who Jesus is. Friend, as we sing, if you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ, myself and Pastor Travis will be standing down front. But you don't have to come forward to talk to one of us. You can feel free to turn to someone seated next to you for their Plenty of people seated around you that would delight in sharing with you how you can trust in Christ. Perhaps you'd like one of us just to pray with you that the truths of this text might indeed be evident in your life. That God would indeed grow you in sanctification. We would delight in shepherding your heart by praying for you. Or thirdly, maybe God is impressed upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with Him, this would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this safe family. Lord, as we respond to you now, we ask that our responses be pleasing to you. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Would you stand?